You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. The Marsden Fund, we've been following some of the grants. They're quite substantial and there have been some fascinating prospects on the table. One that really stands out on the face of it has been pretty unusual. Drug trading on the dark side of the net. Associate Professor Chris Wilkins from Massey University has joined himself 836,000 over three years to study what's going on. Chris, you must be delighted to pass muster on the Marsden Grant. It's a competitive field and this is an unusual subject. Um, yeah, we're, we're actually really happy about it. As you said, it's really competitive and it's always a real um, honour to get this kind of um, support. What is the dark web? How do you get on it? The dark web is essentially the part of the internet that you can't access with normal search engines like Google and things like that. So it takes a little bit of technical expertise, but it's not too much for someone who knows a little bit about computers. And then if you want to access some of the sites that we're going to look into, they usually encourage you to get some encryption technology as well. What happens on the dark web? Um, all kinds of clandestine things. The thing we're most interested in is purchasing of illegal drugs. But there's also things, you know, um, like purchasing explosives, paedophilia images and, and things like that. Oh, Jesus. Oh, good luck. Yeah, so uh, it can, can be <laughs> pretty scary place, yeah. OK. Um, now, if you're trying to find out what's going on with drug trafficking on the dark web... If users on the dark web, I understand you've got all this encryption, people know what they're doing when they go there, they're computer savvy. How do you actually get stuff? How would I buy a gram of heroin? Someone's got to hand it to me, don't they? Everything's encrypted, so you can't trace the IP address of the people that are buying and selling. But apart from that, it almost works a similar, very similar to any online um, retail outlet. So... You have um, listings that are available and you have the prices and what products and then people purchase those and then they leave customer comments at the bottom about how much quality the product was and how reliable it was when it got to you. But yeah, you're right. That Essentially, just like any online shopping, um, you purchase the item and then it gets posted to you through the international mail system. Ah, okay. Why don't the cops just go undercover? And nab them on the on the dark web. They've got it posted from somewhere. Trace it. Can they do that? Part of the issue is the volume of postal packages. So these days, you know, people are lots of people are buying online. Particularly, I mean, not so much in New Zealand, but in, in certainly in Europe and US, you're talking about a massive amount of package delivery going on. Um, and as I said, all the all the retailers and the sites are encrypted. Police have over time have been able to take down a number of the sites. Uh, so, like, you might have heard the original Silk Road was taken down, and but that tends to be based on other kinds of investigation where they physically identify the person who's the administrator rather than breaking the encryption, which is actually, as, as far as everyone knows, is still pretty solid. OK. What about New Zealand on the dark web? In the blurb, it says no-one's studied what's going on. Yeah, that's right. This is what, what makes the study really exciting is that at the moment we really don't know almost anything about what's happening in New Zealand. And the reason it's interesting because, you know, if you, you think about it, in theory, these dark websites would actually be really attractive to places like New Zealand that are geographically isolated. Mm. Some types of drugs you can't get in New Zealand just because we're kind of away from the smuggling ring. So things like cocaine really good MDMA. So you would think that this would be quite a good opportunity for 
um, drug users. And some of the research that's been done in Australia has actually found um, that Australia is actually leading the world in terms of number, the level of utilisation of dark webs. And in Australia, they've actually found an internal dark web site that basically it's just Australian drug dealers selling to Australians. Oh, the dark, so dark a, web. Yeah, yeah. So there's some really um, important questions to ask about where New Zealand is fitting into that and what impact it's having on the local drug market and what's going on in terms of in terms of that. Okay, even in the drug world, what about privacy breaching, the ethics of the internet? If this goes to court, could it be used in evidence if you've breached someone's privacy, that sort of thing? You've got to be careful? From the research angle, you mean? Yeah. As I said, everyone's encrypted on that site, so we, we won't be able to identify anyone just as much as all the participants and, and the police can't identify anyone. We won't be able to. So what we do, essentially, is we, we just scrape the site, so it just basically records all the public listings that are on the site, what products are for sale, what are the prices. So everyone's privacy is completely protected and everyone remains anonymous because, of course, they're really focused on doing that. So they've got all types of encryption security arrangements going on. The Tor security encryption software that's used, as far as we know, no one's been able to break that. So it was actually originally developed by the American military and as far as everyone knows, it's 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 secure. So yep. I mean, we're definitely not in a position to be able to do that. Yeah. It's a really tough thing to break because it basically routes your IP address through lots of, of other routers before it gets to the actual final destination. So it's really oh. incredibly difficult to do anything about. So it's a, a perennial question, though, that whether can anyone do it. But to date, as far as everyone knows, the Tor software is secure. Okay, wastewater analysis. This is interesting. Let's just sniff the water and find out what people are taking. You're doing this as well? Yes, yeah, so obviously the dark net is, is really um, clandestine and it's very difficult to study. And as I said, the encryption's really um, strong, so it's not going to be a matter of you know just doing what we just talked about. So what we've done is quite innovative. We decided to come up with this from different angles. So we've started with the dark net sites themselves, but we're looking at wastewater to, because we really want to see, you know, if people really are, as I said, buying all these drugs that you previously couldn't get in New Zealand, they really are buying them from the dark net and they're using them, then we can pick that up with wastewater and say, well, in, you know, in fact, based on consumption of drugs, it looks like there's this new network of supply that isn't the traditional physical markets that we're used to. Because everyone uses the toilet. That's right. And and the thing about that is, um, again, it's completely anonymous and it's um, yeah. basically we tested the sewage treatment inlet pipe so it covers the entire population. It's non-intrusive. Yeah. No one can be identified. So it has all those kind of advantages. All right. Right. Oh, well, it's fascinating stuff. It was said, I think, was it in the 1980s that uh, the Thames, you know, just downstream from the city of London, uh, if you could distill that, it might be worth it because you could um, recapture a whole lot of cocaine. There was so much in the Thames. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we measure is actually metabolite, so oh. um, residual, so it's not actually the generally the parent drug. But, oh, um, okay. But, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, fascinating stuff. What do you do for a day job? I'm just wondering, a a professor of what? Uh, Well, actually, my PhD is in economics, and that's, and I work at a public health research group that does. uh, We do a lot of research on drug use and drug markets, 
And, um, I mean, one of the angles that makes this project really interesting is because if you think about the traditional drug markets or physical markets, just, you know, face-to-face physical markets, often, you know, pyramids that we all hear about in terms of drug trafficking groups. So this online environment is really changing the game. It's a paradigm shift, just like, you know, when you used to go to shops and actually purchase things, compared to now you can go to Amazon online. So that's really fundamentally changed how the drug market's going to work. This is really at the start of that, so it's it's really exciting, yeah. All right, thank you very much. Associate Professor Chris Wilkins from Massey University. Off you go and start your study. Thank you. Thank you. Tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. John DeBiggs, letter from America Time. Hello, John. Graham, you good? Always. Oh, good. I've had better weeks. Uh, yeah, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. But I'm not in Syria. Well, I'm not, I, I'm, you know, I'm not being bombed. Yeah. I haven't. No one's throwing shit at you. No, no. no. Yeah, yeah. Not in Yemen. <laughs> yeah, Yemen. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's no fun place to be at the moment. No. All right, so uh, El Chapo. El Chapo. Well, we talked about uh, James Whitey Bolter as being a badass last week, the mm. Boston mob guy. This El Chapo guy puts him like in kidney garden. This is El Chapo. Uh, his last name is Guzman. I don't know what his first name is. Maybe Chuck. I don't know. Mm. But he was the uh, head of the uh, Sonola drug cartel in Mexico. And uh, the, finally, they, uh, the Mexican authorities arrested him a couple of years ago. And through all the legal manifestations, he, they finally uh, exported him to the States, and now he's on trial. Right. And can you imagine being a juror on that trial? Already one juror. The, the, the trial just started. Right. And already one juror raised his hand and said, no. Nope, I don't want to be shot. I'm out. <laughs> right, I'm out. Right, right, because he still has some friends he's, in the jungle. You know, I'll tell you how bad this guy is. I mean, there was a, just this week, there was a, a Spanish teacher from North Carolina who was traveling through Mexico by himself and got murdered in the Sonola district by a drug by the drug people. Mm-hmm. And why he got married, nobody knows, or murdered. But why he got murdered, nobody knows. But just, I think, if you travel by yourself in Mexico, you're really susceptible to that mm-hmm. kind of thing. If you're mm-hmm. with a family or you're this or that or whatever, you're not going to be isolated. And, uh, I mean, it's just a, you know, treacherous place. And you're right, he's got a lot of connections. I mean, I mean, we're talking, you know, you don't realize these guys have billions and billions of dollars. I mean, they have armies. I mean, they their influence is all around the world. Yeah, probably a bigger army than Canada. Yeah. Definitely bigger than Costa Rica. They don't have an army. <laughs> they don't have an army. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so there you go. They thought, oh, it's a waste of money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't really feel like attacking Guatemala today, so <laughs> yeah, well, you can go home. We'll hold back. Yeah. <laughs> well, these Guzmans, what are, I wonder if they're a family, because there was that guy Guzman in Peru... Uh, in South America, I think yeah. it was Peru, that Shining Path leader, Maoist. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was eventually put in put the, the, uh, your classical um, jail gear with stripes. <laughs> yeah. Running around in a yeah. cage. Yeah. Yeah. All um, right. And these people, you wonder why someone like that would be murdered. These people do things like that just to show... Anybody yeah, around that they're this in charge. is what I am, am capable of. We're in charge here. It's what not. tyrants do. Yep. Um, there's no rhyme or reason. You could murder people who support you, 
as well as people who don't. Yep. Because that terrorises everyone. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. everybody. Yeah. That's what Saddam Hussein did. Yeah. It's what Mao did. Yeah. And it's a strategy. Yeah, definitely. And that's why nobody wants to be on the jury. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, okay. I don't blame them. Uh, the word of 2018. Yeah, the Oxford Dictionary came out with the word of um, this year, and, and it's, you know, per perfectly apt to me. Toxic. Toxic. Everything is toxic. Marriages, family, political, countries, negotiations. I mean, it just comes up all the time. Toxic. And, that, you know... And as far as American politics, it is the apt word. I mean, it's mm. been toxic and it still continues to be toxic. Yeah. What's his name uh, that replaced Bill O'Reilly? Tucker Carlson. Yeah, yeah. Who are those people outside his place that don't like his politics? No, no I know. But Threat threatening him. Yeah, I know. Tucker's an idiot to me. I, you know, oh, mean, he doesn't uh, deserve uh, that. Uh, but, no, his no, no. His family doesn't deserve that. That's just a poor... That is toxic. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is. Um... Imagine yeah. if it happened to you. Yeah. Oh no, exactly. I don't. I don't think you know. You should. You should keep that uh, separate. Yeah. And and even people going in and yelling at uh, Sarah Sanders and restaurants and Mitch yeah. McConnell. I mean, you're trying to have a meal. You know, calm down. Yeah. You know, it's political is one thing, and eating dinner with your family is a different thing. Yeah. Dead right. Okay. Playing cards. Well, you know, you know, Trump's got all these. <laughs> he hasn't mentioned it once. Fox doesn't mention it. You know, he's got all these stupid soldiers, you know, 6,000 of them at the border, mm -hmm. and they put up this, all this... Are they trying to get into Mexico? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Saying, the hell with this, I'm leaving. You know, speaking of that, just on a sidebar, mm -hmm. over uh, almost 3,000 Americans um, this year alone have um, filed for asylum in... Uh, or not asylum, I think they just moved to Canada. Oh, yeah. More, You know, I mean, it's like more than any, 10 times more than any other year for people you know going to canada it's actually harder to get into canada than it is the usa you've got yeah. a really special immigration <laughs> policy where you're a tacitly very welcoming yeah um it's quite hard to get into canada yeah yeah well it sounds like it mm. but anyway you got all these soldiers there they built they put up all this bob wire mm. they're standing there everybody knows everybody the pentagon Jim Mattis, the you know secretary of defense i mean everybody knows this is just bullshit and the and the soldiers are playing cards. They're in their tents playing. I mean, what else are they going to do? There's nothing to do there. It's the southwest border. There's nothing there, folks. It's a desert. It's just a vast nothing area. You put up some barbed wire. You got a tent, and you're standing there. Isn't that a sign of success that they haven't got anything to do? Well, yeah, yeah, but it's just a waste, a waste of resources. It costs them like 200 million bucks to have all these guys there. Isn't it symbolic in as much as, okay, 5,000 people are coming to the border, um, think again? No, no. These people aren't going to do that because, once again, you've got to realize it is their legal right to ask for asylum to America. They can do this legally. Mm. Just because they march to the border doesn't mean they're doing anything that was in, that is not within their legal right. Yeah. Anybody can walk up to the border. How many would be too many, though? I don't know. There I, is no I, limit I, on it. No. There is no limit. But you are allowed to knock on the door and say, I'm being persecuted. I'd like to see some authority and present my case. Mm. That is a legal 14th Amendment right. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. Mm -hmm. Oh, God bless America. God bless America, goddammit. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Um, and the seven-year-old speaks. Yeah, I'd say, I love the last week when we decided that his official age was seven. That's, yeah, that's yeah. Just perfect. That's just absolutely perfect. Now, come on, folks. Even for you people that support this nut job, I mean, this is the president of the United States. For one thing, he keeps talking about fraudulent vote. And it's very difficult to vote fraudulently to fix a vote in America because every state and every county does it on their own. They're all like little fiefdoms. So there's no central area, no central system where you could, you know, infiltrate and, and you know, get a lot of votes, you know. And it's, you know, it's just like here. You walk up to a voting booth and you give them your name and address and they got a list and they check it. Now, Trump, the president of the United States, said this week repeatedly that, oh, you know, there's, there's guys that are not even allowed to vote and they're in line going to vote and then they vote and then they, they go to their car and they put on a different shirt and a different hat and they go back and vote again and they just kind of keep doing this all day long. And you're going, God damn it, man. You Are you serious? I mean, come on. And then he went on to say, you know, you need voter ID for all kinds of things. You buy a box of cereal in the store, you need voter ID. <laughs> you know, you got you yeah, to be yeah. going, come on. No. I mean, this is the time to call in the guys with the straight jackets, huh? I no, mean, that, that's, that just goes to show that he hasn't shopped in <laughs> he hasn't shopped. 50 years. That's, that's what everybody says. He hasn't shopped. I tell you, my funniest story was when, as I've said before, when he was here and he bought an ice cream from a guy mm. at the airport on the way out, and he kept walking, and the guy started running after him, yelling, hey, 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 where's my money? And Trump turned around and said, I don't carry money. I don't got any money. <laughs> and he had to get one of his security guys to give the guy a buck. <laughs> but that's kind of his attitude. Yeah. He just expected to take it and say, okay. He does live in a different world. <laughs> Has for a long time. I hope to shout. Yeah. All right. The best reality show in America. Well, you know, this is, you know, Mueller's been quiet. I mean, for two months now quiet and there's a there's a litigation going around the courts in america at the moment going to appeal courts back to washington dc circuit court and it keeps kind of going back and forth so people are speculating that Mueller has already subpoenaed trump and that's what they're fighting over it's wow. sealed you don't get to know what it is but you can follow its path from court to court and so they're thinking that also uh, there's a lot of talk about, well, they've they've filed charges against Julian Assange. And what a bozo. Sometimes, you know, the government, you go, God, what's going You know, they leaked the name by mistake. Ah. That, that was supposed to be sealed, but his name was, you know, there. And, you know, and every, you know, they've got court reporters that are on all this shit, you know. And so they're think they got Assange, they got Roger Stone, you got Don Jr. And, and the tension around all that is palpable. I mean, it is just so high right now because everybody, every commentator is saying something's coming within a week. Something is happening. There are indictments that are coming and the shit's going to hit the fan. And, and Trump this week uh, 
said that you know he has a list of questions from Mueller that Mueller said you know you could write you could write your answers out like a take-home test mm. you know and 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 Trump said he wrote them himself you know and you know that's bullshit you know the lawyers wrote them and he just looked at them and signed them I mean he didn't write shit he can't write he can't read he can't concentrate more than five seconds without looking for you know a Big Mac or goddamn Kentucky Fried Chicken or some other goddamn thing I mean you know he only works three hours a day he comes in at eleven o'clock and leaves at four. I mean, you know, this guy is horseshit. And he did, you know, I'm talking about that. That's bullshit. how amazing he is. He only needs, <laughs> he only needs three yeah, hours. Yeah, John. and then on Veterans Day, he doesn't go to Arlington Cemetery. I mean, come on. That is, that's not even a time-honored tradition. That's just something you would do as president to honor. He just keeps talking about honoring the military. He doesn't go on that day to honor the military fallen. He says he was too busy on calls. Bullshit, Trump. I call bullshit on you. I mean, that's an was American it thing. Was it raining? Well, that might have been. He's so goddamn worried about his hair. I don't know why. It looks like a pile of shit on his head anyway. It looks like an orange burnt bird's nest. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. It's come I can't to... help it. <laughs> it's come to this. It's the hair. We've avoided the hair. Yeah, we have avoided the hair, but screw it. No, uh, <laughs> but anyway... Everybody's waiting. Something's going to happen within mm -hmm. the next six or seven days. I mean, there's going to be some indictments, and, you know, the shit's really going to hit the fan at this particular time. You know, and they talked about this whole week, you know, Trump's been in a bad mood, you know. And then they, you know, I haven't even mentioned this stupid thing with Jim Acosta and CNN mm -hmm. where they revoked his... Um, his um, press credentials because mm. because he he asked too many questions and wouldn't give up the mic. Oh, uh, he he is a pest. He is a pest, but that's what he's supposed to do. That's what reporters do. They keep pestering you. That's their job. Yeah, he was wanting the stage, really. Yeah, he, no, he, he was is. hogging he, it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. He's, he's a he's always been a thorn. But now Trump is saying that they're going to write up a list of decorum that, you know, you have to, you oh, know, yeah. so so now it's come down to only the politest reporters get to ask questions. I mean, it's so kindergarten. I mean, the White House is a joke. Trump's a joke. The White House is a joke. All the people in the White House, along with Trump, lie every day. It's it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's 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 nonsense. That's all you can say. It's toxic. <laughs> Is that you done? That's me done today. Yeah. That's all I could stand. Okay. <laughs> Good for you, John. Thank you. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Read me a poem. The thesis is, I find someone for whom poetry is a thing, or they appreciate it in some way. They read one of their favourites. Uh-huh. One that they think is good, and then basically just tell me why. There was a bonus to this particular weekend's guest, Sam Hunt, and that's because in the midst of doing this, a book arrived, a selection of poems from Sam Hunt's writing career. And so I thought, ooh, that's good. So I tracked him down to his yeah. house. Sam, look, first of all, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here and welcome welcome aboard the good ship. It's actually a tree a tree house you're living in. We live in here, so it's good. I've always wanted to live in a tree house, and this is ideal. In the countryside, and we're looking out over um, Estuarine Harbour. Beautiful. Look at, uh, looking down the Arapoa River of the Kuiper, in fact. Read me one of your favourite poems and then tell me why you think it's good. I don't ultimately think in terms of poets. It's the thing that it's all about for me is the poem. Yeah. And I find a lot of talk about poetry 
just straight out boring. I know lots of poems. I grew up on poems. My, my father used to tell me ballads. And my mother, who was 30 years younger than he, uh, her taste in poetry was more the lyric poets, you know, Yeats. And yeah. So between the two, a lot of cross-fertilisation took place because, I mean, my father could quote W.H. Auden when they met. He wouldn't have probably have known much about Auden. But uh, I'll tell you a poem. This is one that I first heard when I was about, I'm guessing, about 10. Uh, it's by W.B. Yeats. Cheers, by the way. Mm. One there and one on the base. Oh, very good. That's, that's called The Hunt Boy's Toast. Well, here's a poem that I've always loved. Um, it's by, as I say, W.B. Yeats, written in the sort of middle to late years. He died in 1939. This is a two-verse poem. It's in a very tight form. And for me, it sings. It's called The Collarbone of a Hare. Would I could cast a sail on the water where many a king has gone and many a king's daughter and delight at the comely trees and the lawn, the playing of pipes and the dancing and learn that the best thing is to change my love while dancing and trade but a kiss for a kiss. I would find by the edge of that water the collarbone of a hare worn thin by the lapping of water and pierce it through with a gimlet and stare at the old bitter world where they marry in churches and laugh over the untroubled waters at all who marry in churches through the white thin bone of a hare. Yeah. And you are one of these people that remember poems. That's well, you, can't, you, I can't forget some. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are poems like that, of that yeah. calibre. A lot of poems by all sorts of poets, uh, his work I love. That's almost my litmus test, if you like, for, for... I won't say for a good poem. I know what a good poem is. It's a poem that knocks me over. And usually I find, and especially when I was younger but more difficult as you get older, is that if I remembered it pretty well straight away... Well... I'd be pretty well right. You know, when I was very young, I was at a convent school, our teacher in Standard 2. Her name was Sister Mary Bernardine, very large nun, Sister of Mercy. Anyway, she said, ''Does anyone know a poem they can say by heart?'' So I put my hand up, you know, ''Yes, Sam?'' And so I got up and said a poem that my mother used to say, and I'll tell it's very short, by E. Cummings. It goes like this. It's called No Time Ago. No time ago, or else a life, walking in the dark, I met Christ. Jesus, my heart flopped over and lay still while he passed. As close as I am to you, yes, closer, made of nothing except loneliness. A day or two later, my mother was pedalling her bike down Milford Road. This would be, in, what, this would be about 1950-something. The two nuns always used to travel in, in couples, so they wouldn't travel on their own. So there were two sisters uh, walking through Milford. One of them was being Sister Mary Bernardine, seeing my mother. said, oh, Mrs Hunt, Mrs Hunt, I've got something to tell you about Sam. And Mum's thinking, oh, God, <laughs> oh, God, what's happened now? She said yesterday or a few days ago in class, I, I was doing a poetry 
thing, and I was bringing some poems in, and, and Sam got up and said the most extraordinary poem. And I'd love to know where it came from, because he didn't know, but he knew the poem. It would have been an unusual thing when you look back on it for a seven-year-old to pop up, you know. Yeah. But, but when I say that, I, and I, that I grew, had poems in my childhood and, and onwards, it was never in a sort of literary up-your-ass sort of thing. It was part of being who you were. That's actually something that I'm keen to do. This is just people appreciating poems. No highfalutin, impenetrable postmodernist nonsense. Some people, that's their world. And I've learned over the years not to be too critical of them. This is just not my race meeting. OK, yeah. I don't know how to answer this, really, um, apart from saying which poem I'm interested in. It's certainly not some academic's idea of something which has been sort of, you know, shaken around in a bottle. <laughs> um, <laughs> What is the poet saying? You know, what is the poet saying? Well, for God's sake. It doesn't mean that, that, I, that I don't go through the other level. I mean, I just recently put a poem to memory that I'd always found obscure. And I thought, the only way I'm going to get around this is not putting it to memory. It's W.H. Jordan's Shield of Achilles, which is a pretty dense poem. And to my delight and surprise, I found myself able to put it to memory and when, it, when it's there, when it's part of your luggage, you know, in your head and in your heart, mm. it's great. Mm. You, you can travel light. You've got a, you've got a whole cross-section of poems, Hungarian poets in translation, mm. uh, Mexican poets, Spanish poets, you know, and it, just wonderful. One of my favourite is a, 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 uh, is a translation. Can I tell you this poem? This is called A Black Stone Upon a White Stone. It's by Cesar Valiero from one of the South American countries. Anyway, the translation goes like this. I shall die in Paris with a burst of rain on a day which I recall already certain. I shall die in Paris and I'm not disturbed, maybe on a Thursday like today of autumn. It shall be a Thursday for this Thursday that I churn these verses out. My arm bones both are aching and more than I have ever done I turn with all my road to see myself forsaken. Cesar Vallejo has died all battered him without his doing anything to them. They gave it to him hard with rope and cane. And here are the witnesses how he was flayed, the Thursdays of the weeks, the aching arms, the loneliness, the highways and the rain. Poems of that, you know, if you can carry those around in your ear, you know, without having to, you know, yeah. have a manservant to carry them for you. <laughs> when did you first start writing poems after that you were seven I, years I, old? I don't write them for a start. I okay. scribble them down at the end, but I hear them. Once I know what the voice is in the poem, I'm pretty well there. When did I first start scribbling them down so I'd remember them? The first one I know of, Graham, is um, one that my mother was in her papers after my mother died in 2004. I was put in charge of her papers, you know, letters and things, you know, all that. Mm. And there was this poem written by Sam Hunt 
1952. So that's the first one I'm aware of. Shall I say it? It's very short. You were six. Seven, please. It goes like this. Pretty, yeah, corny, but I like I like the rhythm of it, especially the last couple of lines. Climb up the cliff path to the pines where through their needles salt winds blow and far below the fish and ocean go. And down the cliff path home bring one lone Christmas tree and by the beach let it in warm winds grow. Okay. The first one I know of. (laughs) (laughs) That's damn musical. How do you look back on the writing of the past? Does it seem like... A different person, you can well, see changes. It's good. It's, um, yeah. What I find is that a poem that I may have written, let's say, 40 or 50 years ago, when I come across it in later times, quite often uh, the poem hasn't changed, but it has changed. It's taken on a separate, different life. I'll give you an example. Uh, I won't quite worry about quoting the poem, but that book's called Coming To It, and that's the title of a poem that I wrote in in the early 1980s. And when I wrote it, I know that the it, if you like, in it, Coming To It, was that it being that moment of realisation and inspiration that gives you the poem or makes you the person you are or... Yeah. Over the years, and I've quite often have done that poem in shows and performances, and I realised that the coming to it, and the reason I called the book Coming to It, is that the it has gone from that to another meaning altogether, yeah. namely uh, death, uh, coming to it. So when you ask me about early poems, quite often they've had to see change themselves. And the other experience I've had too is lines or a verse that you may have written down again 40 or 50 years ago and it didn't come to anything. And then you pick it up from an old exercise book and whoop, there's your poem. It's it's been brewing away there. I remember asking my late friend Alistair Teotaki Campbell where he got the last line of a poem of his called Why Don't You Talk To Me? And I remember being very impressed at the time. He said, I had to wait 10 years for that last line. Yeah. I was really impressed. Yeah. But I can actually now say that sometimes I've actually had to wait 50 or 60 years to, for the last line. I'll tell you the poem. It's, by, it's a poem I love by Alistair, Camp, Alistair, Alistair Teotaki Campbell. It's called Why Don't You Talk To Me? Why do I post my love letters in a hollow log? Why put my lips to a knothole in a tree and whisper your name? The spiders spread their nets and catch the sun and by my foot in the dry grass ants rebuild a broken city. Butterflies pair in the wind and the yellow bee, his holsters packed with bread, rise blue air like a drunken cowboy. More and more I find myself talking to the sea. I'm alone with my footsteps. I watch the tide recede and I am left with miles of shining sand. Why don't you talk to me? So he got his last line, which became the title as well, yeah. And it is the clincher. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. And and sometimes you've got to wait for them, wait for them, you know, yeah. You know, lines, poems are very strange. I quite often hear songwriters on the radio or music, things like Music 101 sometimes, 
Liam Finn, I think it was, is Liam talking about certain songs that seem to come out of nowhere. Mm. You know, and they probably actually haven't come out of nowhere. They've come out of some part of your subconscious, yeah. been quietly bubbling away there in the, on, on, on the back element. A reminder that we maybe don't have any free will at all. <laughs> Stuff happens to us. <laughs> That's what happens. That's yeah. what happens, yeah. yeah. Getting older, is it what you thought it would be when you were younger? Um... I don't know what I thought it was, was when I was young. My, my father was 60 when I was born. Uh, like, when I was 12, he was 72, when he did his last co big court job, murder case. I went down with, with him uh, to the, uh, over, the, over the two weeks. He got the guy off, and on the way home in the, in the train, back up from Rotorua back up to Auckland, Dad said, you do realise he was guilty, don't you? He would have been the last man to have been hanged for, for, for murder in New Zealand if Dad hadn't got him off. And, um, you know, I travelled with my father quite a bit. Not a lot, because I had to go to school, I guess, but I didn't go to school very often. And he didn't mind. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was picking stuff up from all over. Yeah. You know, it's quite funny. When a lot of my exercise books went into the Turnbull Library, where they are uh, housed in the National Library, I was looking through an old exercise book and I used to go down to different beaches like Back Beach, Castor Bay, take the day off school and go down there and mm. sometimes I'd be scribbling away on a poem or something. Anyway, I came across this one particular ex exercise book among many and the sand, the sand was still between the sheets of the exercise book. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the sand from when I was, you know, uh, whatever age it would have been, 15 or something like that. Almost as evocative as a smell. You know, isn't it good? Yeah. yeah and the sand was, and, and was recognisably the sand from Back Beach, Castor Bay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, was, it, had, a, it had a gold tinge in it. Oh. Yeah. Just about this new collection, well, this collection which is newly out. Selection. 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 Selection, <laughs> OK. <laughs> you have selected poems, Collected poems, and if you're really dumb, complete poems. But, you, oh. but who would ever want complete poems? Because I mean, my mortality rate's about ninety percent. Oh, I bought the bumper book of Larkin. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> you're a brave man. Oh, and, and Benjo Patterson, actually. So oh, there you yeah, go. Oh, good, good taste as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. people put down Benjo Patterson oh, no, as being great. just a folk poet. Oh no, he's he's good. And, oh hallelujah! Thank you for saying so. Yeah, yeah. And Henry Lawson too. You know, I think Henry Lawson's a much underrated poet. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Okay, I've read through the selection. I love the way you deal with love and sex and bodies and things in a really plain and beautiful way. If I was Sarah, I'd be pretty stoked at this love poem. Would you mind reading that? Why don't I give you an album and I'll do it with DK and the Heavy Eights. David Kilgour is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. David Kilgour, that's fabulous. Do you know this... You went on tour with them. I've done, two, I've done three albums with them now. Yeah. Sorry, two. We've got the third lined up. How did you catch up with David Kilgour? He didn't have to catch up with him. Um, <laughs> no, you know, I mean, how do I, mean, how do I catch up with him? I, uh, I met him when, when his parents were running the, um, the pub in Dunedin where I used to do shows, the Captain well, Cook. Okay. He was just a young kid. I don't remember him from that meeting, but then in that later years, we, 
we met up. Actually, we met up thanks to Air New Zealand. They they mixed up our tickets, and I ended up sitting in David Kilgar's seat, which was down towards the back. Yeah. And he ended up sitting in my seat, which was in row one. So I quickly had this changed. I hope I pointed out to the hostess. I, I, I didn't know it was over. Yeah. I, you know, you know, I just knew somebody was in my seat, and I was not in row one. I feel I belong. <laughs> I suppose it not catch up. It was. It's only a relatively recent thing, a few years ago, that you've been playing with David Kilgar on the Heavy Eight, so isn't it? Oh, yeah, but I've been working with musicians right through. Yeah, uh, I did yeah. the first terror, uh, awful album called Beware the Man with Mammal. Mammal were good. Weren't they? Yeah, I wasn't. That was a long time ago. That was in about 1972, I think. Right. But in the meantime, I've worked with, well, with the Waratahs, well, it's it's another part of, another part of telling the story. Sometimes you, I don't sing. I I descri- used to describe my poems reasonably accurately. I always felt as songs for the tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> there are forgotten breed the t- the tone deaf, the ones who got a mouth that without singing, you know, when they're singing the national anthem or some bullshit. Okay, we'll hear Sarah David Kilgar on the heavy eight. So that's good. I'd much rather you played it because it's, yeah. a good, it's a good song. Yeah. Yeah. Your body has no floor that must be alive. Morgan had sad hands. Angela's temper never opened doors. Your body has no floor. I look for one daily. The darkness of the valley. The climb to your jaw. Your body has no floor. I witness birth, I pray at a bleeding door. Your body has no floor, the black shag neither, nor the blue heron of prayer. You live outside the law, your body has no floor, buttocks, breast and thigh. like you today. They used to be top of the hip parade. I'm thinking John Cooper Clark, Alexi Sale. It was a thing. What's happened? I'm not really interested in hip parades, but... No, uh, no, but it's, it's uh, interesting that there aren't that in the public domain so much around oh, the water no, cooler no, in the public no, square. No, 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 I mean, I don't, go, don't follow it, but I get invited to them. Things called poetry slams. Yeah. Not my race meeting. It, it, it happens differently for me. Yeah. Rapping. I remember a band a long time ago, a rap band, wrote a song, which I think they dedicated to me, which was called Original Rapper. Nice. So in a way, you know, yeah. I've been rapping all my life, in my own way, in my tone, <laughs> in my tone deaf sort of way. My requirement for a song or something, is, it was what, what I call the CH3 factor, which is charm, charge, chant. Okay. Charm, charge, and chant. 
Uh, you don't always have them all going at the same time. Sure, you don't want to sound like a Gregorian monk at, well, if you're talking about about having a hot route on the, on the beach somewhere. Mm. <laughs> well, it may go quite well, actually. <laughs> Come on. Uh, you, might, you might, might want too much chanting going on then, you know. God, it may, it may put you off the stride. It's <laughs> a damn good title for a new poem, isn't it? Hot route on the beach. Uh, I, I, I never, thought, never thought of it. That's right. <laughs> Hot reading on the beach. What's the title of your of your new new book, Mr. Hunt? Hot reading on the beach. Um, Why not? Why not? It'll it'll be. I could see it winning the the best book of the year award. Just so they had to say it. <laughs> um, something I've found is actually useful in these pieces is to get you to recite that first poem that you recited again just introduce it why it's good and just no, do it no, again because no, hearing something once it just goes past oh yeah i agree with that yeah yeah i'll say i won't be saying what the poem's about you could, i think i think the listeners can work that out for themselves okay but, but why do you think it's good because i can't forget it that's why because it stays there tapping you know yeah. Tap, tap, tap. <laughs> it's called The Collarbone of a Hare, and it's by W.B. Yeats, and it was written in the late 1920s, I think, which would be sort of like coming into his late years. He died in 1939. It's a poem that I've loved since I can first remember hearing it, which would have been my mother saying it, because she knew it. As the years went on, she and I used to help e each other out. T together, my mother and I could get through the whole of Milton's Lycidas. But we needed each other to get through. I'd forget a line and then she'd come up with a line, you know, Lycidas is dead, dead ere is prime, young Lycidas, and hath not left his pair. You know, and, and it was lovely. I remember mentioning that's how Homer must have been remembered in the day. Yeah, it would have been. Style. That would have been. Yeah. yeah, it would have been. Anyway, this is a poem by W.B. Yeats called Collarbone of a Hare. And why do I like it or what is it about? Well, as I say, the listeners can work that one out. Think of an old man by the water, looking out, remembering. Would I could cast a sail on the water where many a king has gone and many a king's daughter and a light of the comely trees in the lawn, the playing of pipes and the dancing, and learn that the best thing is to change my love while dancing and trade but a kiss for a kiss. I would find by the edge of that water the collarbone of a hair worn thin by the lapping of water and pierce it through with a gimlet and stare at the old bitter world where they marry in churches and laugh over the untroubled waters at all who marry in churches through the white, thin bone of a hare. Sam Hunt, thanks so much for being part of this. It's been my pleasure. Been my pleasure, Graham. Good on you. Yeah, yeah, keep the poems happening. <laughs>